I think the pitfall that creative people fall into, which is sort of the default state for creative people, is um, I just want to be creative and I just have to find the right gatekeeper who will open that door for me and let me get paid for this. I don't want to run around and sell stuff. You know, I don't want to have to hawk wares. I, I, I just want to do my creative thing. And I think that uh, creative people really do themselves a disservice and really hinder themselves by getting locked in that gatekeeper mindset. This is the Angles of Latitude podcast, session number 165 with political satirist and sci-fi podcast host, Andrew Eaton. What you're about to hear is the integration of life. Clarity is power. If you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. Liberty. We choose to go to the moon. It's happening. And all things geek. Yeah, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Uh, you got a badass over here. Welcome to the Angles of Latitude podcast. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us for this session of the AOL Podcast. I'm your host, JC Preston, and with me for this session is co-host Andy Dix. If this is the first time you're listening in, this is the show where we bring you life lessons or a message from successful entrepreneurs, experts, athletes, and artists so that you too can find and execute your own personal mission and live a lifestyle that you're proud of. Now today's chat is definitely a treat. Uh, This might come as a surprise to you guys because I really don't talk about it much here but I'm a bit of a political junkie. In fact, I think I've probably been involved with politics since high school where I spent some time helping uh, local politicians in my hometown run for and win uh, various campaigns. And while I used to be a diehard Republican, I've become more and more of a free thinker in this regard simply because the world isn't black and white like many in the media and both major political parties would like you to think. In fact, some would say that I am a political orphan. To that effect, today's guest is someone who actually runs the podcast for us, Orphans. His show, The Political Orphanage, is certainly a thinking man's or woman's show in which he discusses current events and politics with his guests. On top of that, he also runs his newer show, Alienating the Audience, where he and other nerds plunge deep into films, books, and TV shows to find out what sci-fi is really all about. In our discussion with Andrew, Andy and I explore how he got into political satire on the national level, what he'd recommend to creatives to get themselves noticed, and what his experience as a comedian has taught him about business. But before we get into that, I want to remind you guys about the resource called Uncover Your Personal Mission. And as I just mentioned in this chat, we'll be finding out about how Andrew has literally enabled himself to build a career that he really enjoys. And however, not all of us know how or take the time to do that. In fact, many of us simply follow the the money trail and take the job that pays us the most. And you might luck out and find a job that you feel qualified for, but even then you might just realize that it's not all that satisfying of a position for you. Something, Something is still missing. And Uncover Your Personal Mission, it was my goal to not only help you figure out what kind of work might satisfy you, but also point you in the direction to apply that new knowledge. And in it, you'll find questions that will help you find your passion, purpose, and process. That way, you don't waste time doing work you don't enjoy. 
You can grab it for free at newinceptions.com slash personal mission guide. Again, that's newinceptions.com slash personal mission guide. Go get it today and let's make sure that you start working towards your own big stage. All right, before we get started with this session's chat, remember to subscribe to the show on whichever platform you're listening in on. Also, if you're using Apple Podcasts as your podcast player, we'd love to get a review from you. In fact, a recent guest, Cindy Walter of Session 1 at 63, actually gave us a review. And she said that JC and Andy were great hosts. And I thoroughly enjoyed this podcast interview. And I love the time and effort they put in beforehand to really be prepared to give the listeners great information to help them. They made me feel at ease and comfortable and were totally prepared for the interview. Excited to listen to more episodes. Cindy, thank you for those kind words and being on the show. And your story was certainly inspiring. And I love the work that you're doing, not only in helping people be the healthiest versions of themselves, but you know, getting their mind right in that process. And if you guys haven't checked out that session yet, again, that's 163, and I totally recommend giving it a little bit of your attention. That said, remember you guys email us anytime at heyguysatnewinceptions.com with any current issues that you're going through while you're building and scaling your business. Again, that email is heyguysatnewinceptions.com. Show notes and show note extras of the show can be found at newinceptions.com slash 165. And as always, I'll be on at the end of the show to fill you in on anything we might have missed. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. This is JC Preston with me in this session is Andy Dix, host of the Hopeful Hoosier podcast. Andy, how are you doing? Well, you know, in the words of Zig Ziglar, I'm super good, but I'm hoping to get better. Is that something he actually said? Because I remember the whole, uh, you, you know, you do... You do enough of what other people need, and you automatically get what you want. So that's another another quote of his. Well, if he didn't say it, he should have, right? So I don't know. I'm <laughs> we'll attribute it to him, right? All right, all right, love it, love it. But you know, this is a uh, really going to be a fun chat today, and and I'm one that I've definitely been looking forward to. And as, you know, as creatives, one of the things that comes up from from time to time in conversation uh, when I'm around town or or on the web is this whole idea of, of focusing on popularity and they focus on building their following before they really focus on building what they're known for, which kind of seems a little bass backwards to me, but it's in some circle, that's how it's promoted. Um, you know, an idea that I actually hear myself talking with other creatives about often is that we shouldn't confuse our career with our income and furthermore, our platform. And in other words, just because you're in a potentially lucrative industry doesn't necessarily mean things are going to come to you automatically. And just because you have a great following, are skilled, and are respected for what you do doesn't necessarily mean that you can rest. Today's guest is someone who can tell us a thing or two about that. And on top of being a stand-up comedian, he's a comedy writer, a corporate speaker, and he's formerly the host of the Reason TV's acclaimed political satire web series, mostly weekly, and Econ Pop, which explained some of the economical things uh, through his awesome comedy and pop culture references. Uh, today, we, he hosts his new show, The Political Orphanage, where he and his friends take a look at some of today's biggest political stories. Today, we're actually speaking with Andrew Heaton, who can be found at MightyHeaton.com. Andrew, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Uh, very well. I, I didn't realize that I needed to have a Zig Ziglar quote. 
uh, handy. I, I didn't do my prep work for your program, but I but I am doing very well, and uh, good good to be on here with you, Andy, and you, TJ. JC. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just oh God, can I take that back? <laughs> I just, I just, I no. I think it's a keeper. There's, I, I there's was, the no. I was quote. on. I was doing a show with somebody else named TJ yesterday, and my my braid short circuited. Uh, JC, you're of course my yeah. best friend, uh, and, and uh, you know I, I fully intend for you to be the the groomsman at my wedding, uh, and 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 officiated at the same time. Uh, so uh, forgive me for that momentary lapse in terminology. I'll, I'll just add that to another random name that I've been called over the years. At least it's not fly, right? So that was, was the name that I used to go by in college. Anyway, uh, before we get started, one of the things that I want to actually say, though, is that um really hoping that, you know, that it, we are actually talking, doing this recording right before Thanksgiving. And that being said, I actually hope to that you're coming to us with at least a Black Friday sale because I was actually going through your books uh, before the show. And were you aware that the monkey cage is available on Amazon for $339 or new at an awesome price of $495? Uh, you know, I've seen that before and it, it kind of worries me because, uh, you know, I, originally that book had, had been produced through a small imprint called last house standing. And I, I titled it from the monkey cage, which is an HL Minkin reference. And, uh, then I mm-hmm. realized that there's a Washington post column of that same name. And also nobody knew what it meant. And, uh, everybody thought it was a comic book because I had cartoons on the cover. And then uh, I, 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 uh, the, the second edition was published under the name Laughter is Better Than Communism, which I think is more to the point of like, okay, this guy doesn't like communism and he thinks he's funny. He might even be funny. Uh, and so, so basically my, From the Monkey Cage is the same book and it bothers me because that means that eventually some diehard Heaton fan will buy it thinking they're getting some kind of very special out of print book. And in reality, they're just buying and like, and I'm not, I'm not the one selling it, so I can't refund it to him. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, uh, hats off to whoever's sitting on it and thought that would be a good investment. Uh, that is, that is, it's funny how that works. It's just actually the, one of the other co-hosts for the show, Veronica Karen, I've actually seen her show, her book, which is still in print. I've seen it as high as like $125, which, you know, it's, it's definitely not that much. So it's, it's weird how those, those numbers work out on, on there for sure. But yeah, so let's, let's kind of get things rolling. One of the things that, uh, you know, pulled me to your previous show is that uh, you have a very unique way of, of diving into politics and, and that the book obviously, and it's second edition is definitely a good um, example of that. Not only do you address it with satire, but you relate it with a ton of things that are actually going on in pop culture and, yeah, there's other shows that do that, but truth be told, you have a background that allows you to do that at a completely different level than than most people do. Um, and in fact, I, I think it lets listeners relate to you on a level that I, again, don't think other hosts can can relate to these days. I'm guessing part of the what comes from your background as a stand-up comedian, where you have to make your audience actually feel at ease before you really go deep. Is that read correct? Uh, yes, I think so. And thank you for the compliment. Um, uh, yeah, I think all of that's true. I, th- I think there's a few different things going in terms of when I'm doing political satire. Um, so um, I, I have I have a background both in politics and in, in comedy. Um, in fact, they started at the same time. I moved to Washington, D.C. Mm. in my early 20s and worked for a couple of members of Congress and so was you know, in the legislative branch, kind of seeing stuff get made and getting yelled at by constituents on a regular basis and getting drunk and making out with other uh, members of the legislative branch. And uh, at the same time, at night, I was off doing stand-up comedy. And 
uh, kept doing that and wind up getting into um, television writing. I wrote for uh, Kennedy and The Independence, which are two primetime um, news analysis shows and was was doing, you know, kind of proper um, teleprompter writing, but also writing comedic bits for them. So I've I've it's kind of gone back and forth like a game of game of pong uh, between politics and comedy. Um, I think that uh, there's there's a kind of thirst for substance right now. I I, I think the the you know the frequently quoted thing that uh, Americans don't have a short the, the Americans have a short attention span. I, I don't think is accurate. Or or rather, if Americans as a whole have a shorter attention span, there is a substantial minority of Americans that genuinely want to understand things better and and have a substantive approach to it. And I have found that comedy is a great way of doing that, both in terms of making something that might be kind of dry. Uh, and and explaining it better. So like uh, in, in uh, Laughter is Better Than Communism, the, the book that you reference, uh, JC slash not uh, TJ, um, uh, like, you know, I do a chapter <laughs> on like regulatory uh, regulatory capture, which is not the most exciting of subjects, but I'm able to make it funny through humor. And the the other thing that, that I found comedy to be very good about, um, less so now, it's harder now, but in general, uh, comedy is good in that someone that might disagree with you on something, if they're willing to walk with you for the length of the joke, they're willing to entertain your idea for the length of the joke as well. So if if I go on stage and I do stand-up comedy, and I, I tend to alternate between doing either observational comedy, which is not political, or overtly political comedy if I'm performing for uh, a think tank or a political action committee or a political conference or something, then I'll just do the political stuff. But but even when, I, when I'm doing a regular audience and I'm doing political jokes... Um, is they're they're wanting to laugh and they're they're willing to concede a a, a premise and and go with it in a way that I don't think would happen if you're arguing with somebody. If you're arguing with somebody, um, you're you're immediately or you're lecturing somebody. You're you're immediately kind of um putting them on guard. Whereas if it's comedy and you're doing a good job and you're being funny, uh, you you can get the person to kind of come on the journey with you. So um, so humor helps tremendously in that regard. As somebody who kind of saw how the sausage was made in Washington, D.C., now, would you say that there's a big difference or about the same between the behind-the-scenes people that you actually knew and the people that we see behind the cameras now that's the public media persona? Uh, yes, there is. And and um, my experience was surprisingly positive. So, uh, I, I am not a big government guy. I am much more of a tiny government guy, a, a, a boutique government guy. Um, that said, though, I, I found the kind of, uh, at least in the legislative branch, that the, the average constituent is getting a pretty good bang for their buck in terms of the people that are working in their congressional office. It tends to be very bright people. Um, and it was also my experience, and this could this could have all changed by now. Uh, but when I, I left about the time the, the, time the, the Tea Party came in, um, but but I got in before the Tea Party came in. In my experience, uh, it's surprisingly bipartisan off camera, uh, and and certainly pre Tea Party, you had senators that would fight tooth and nail that were very good friends. So like uh, Jim Inhofe, who's a, an arch conservative from Oklahoma, and uh, um, her her name escapes uh, Feinstein, Diane Feinstein, uh, Feinstein, uh, who's a very very progressive um, senator, former senator now from California. Um, you know, they, they would fight on camera and just, you know, say, you know, <laughs> nasty quips at each other. The lights would turn off. They go get dinner. They were good friends. Um, and, and I find that happens more frequently than you would think. Uh, and so I, Washington's this kind of weird beast in that the people there are very teamsy. They're very, uh, they are very partisan, uh, but there's a kind of, they almost approach it more like a game 
than than uh, than say like a religion. Uh, and as a result, um, on on the one hand, that can be kind of sleazy um, if it is a game to you. But at the same time, you're a lot more capable of working with people you disagree with it uh, disagree with when you view it as such. Um, so I, I think that that's something that that you see uh, see behind. I also suspect that like right now, a lot of the hijinks we're seeing in in politics um, that are they're frequently portrayed as quote unquote three dimensional chess or something like that. I, I don't think that that's happening. I, I think if you were to see them behind the scenes, it would, it would just the constant soundtrack would be yakety sacks <laughs> of just a series of blunders <laughs> of, of people falling over escalators and accidentally emailing stuff to the wrong. Pri- I, I, I highly doubt that those, you know, inadvertent emails and things are, are brilliant, intentional, strategic moves. I, I think it's much more likely a lack of coffee. <laughs> So as you're as you're talking about, you went to Washington early twenties, uh, college career. I mean, what was your major? How did you set yourself up? I mean, you didn't just like decide, oh, here's my major, and I'm going to go to Washington and do something completely different. I mean, what? How did you set yourself up to even go there for you know people who might be in college or or you know going down that path right now? Well, I would highly recommend anybody in college listening to me not do what I did, uh, which was pick two um, vocationally useless majors. Uh, so I double majored in history and world religions. And, uh, you know, because of the big history factory uh, down the street from where I mm-hmm. lived, uh, it was incredibly lucrative things. And, and my, my parents, uh, who are astonishingly supportive of my, my wayward lifestyle, um, their advice was, why don't you pick one of those two things and then also get a business degree or, you know, an engineering degree or a computer science degree or something. And I went, no, 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 I'm going to, you see, they're going to balance each other out. It's like, it's like, instead of buying one lottery ticket, I'm going to buy two. So how could it go wrong? And, uh, so that's what I did. I did have an idea to, to, to get into politics when I was in college and I was definitely going that direction. I was in a lot of political organizations. Um, I had, I had paged for the state capitol several times and, uh, was, was gearing up for that, um, and kind of, kind of thought I would run for office. And in one of the only brief, sudden lightning bursts of humility I've ever had, um, decided when I was a junior or a senior in college that that really wasn't something that I should do as a, you know, a twenty-two-year-old that didn't have uh, kids or any job experience or a house. That that just I really had no mm-hmm. no business trying to legislate an agenda over other people's lives until it actually had one. And uh, so I kind of bowed out of it and um, fell back into it uh, in that uh, I, I kind of, you know, bounced around a little bit after college. I, I lived in Britain for a little bit, um, lived in a, a tool shed in my, in my best friend's backyard in Los Angeles for about six months, uh, working as a background actor, uh, and um, ended up getting reinterested in politics and, and ended up becoming um, a an intern and then a full uh, staffer in, in Congress from there. Um, the, the, the bigger deviation that happened for me is that I, I, you know, I got back in and started doing that. And uh, then I got a scholarship to go to the University of Edinburgh to get a degree in international politics. And I thought I was going to wind up working for the State Department if I could pass the test or for a think tank uh, or, or something like that. I didn't really think I was going to go into elected office, uh, but I thought I was going to be some kind of bureaucrat. And I was doing stand-up at night, and I kept doing stand-up when I was in Edinburgh. Um, in fact, I, I became the resident comedian at Saturnalia Cabaret, which is to say that I was the guy that told jokes in between a guy that ate light bulbs and a woman that took her clothes off. 
which I think is probably the apotheosis of my comedy career. I think it's probably where I fit best was <laughs> uh, telling jokes to a bunch of very drunken Scotsmen uh, in between what, what in effect was a freak show and a strip show. Uh, and I, so I kept doing comedy and about the time I, I graduated, I started going, wait a minute, is this something I could actually do for a living? Uh, cause you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Oklahoma. My dad's a judge. The rest of my family's farmers. Like I, I come from this hyper comedically pragmatic, uh, group of people, um, that are not in any way prone to fits of whimsy. And so it just, it had never occurred to me that you could actually get paid for a living to be funny. But I, I went back to DC and was there for about a year and it just, it wasn't manifesting the way I hoped it was going to be. And, and I, I was, I was taking weird odd jobs and I finally went, what, why am I, why am I taking odd jobs to live in a city? I don't even really want to live in that bad for a job. I don't even want that bad. Cause by, by then I had decided, well, I'm going to do the responsible thing. I'm going to get a, an adult suit and tie job with a 401k and a briefcase. And I'll keep doing stand up at night. Maybe when I'm 40, I'll see if I can transfer to New York and, and then I'll be able to, you know, parlay my, and, and it was just the, 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 just the suit and tie thing wasn't even really manifesting. And so I finally went, well, this is stupid. If I'm going to be doing an odd job, um, why don't I do it in a city I want to live in? And why don't I do it in pursuit of a career that I want to do? And so mm. I moved from D.C. Uh, to New York City and uh, got into the comedy community up there and uh, ironically got pulled back into politics in some form, which I had not planned on. But uh, when The Independence started, which was a, a primetime TV show, um, they heard a rumor that there was some comedian in New York that really liked Milton Friedman, uh, but was funny and had had worked for Congress. And they thought that was a pretty good uh, trifecta of of politics and creativity and, and free market economics. And so they brought me on and I wound up working in TV for a while and then did that up until uh, 2016. And then I, I decided to leave and go work for Reason, um, which is a, a great outfit out of Washington, D.C. I, I, st I stayed physically in New York, but I would I would commute down there and do political satire videos with them, got to host Mostly Weekly, which uh, which you brought up, JC, a few minutes ago, and um, did that and began to, you know, build my own audience, my own following, and uh, be on camera and, and, and you know, be properly funny for uh, for myself, or at least um, as, a, as a character uh, within a broader context. Uh, and then mm. I got really tired of New York and uh, moved down to Texas, Thought I was done with all that stuff, and then again, got offered a show. Uh, I was doing a, a daily show, Something's Off with Andrew Heaton, which is now finished, uh, but but uh, had, had been a daily TV show and podcast, and I, I did that, and then that stopped in June, and I went independent, now host the political orphanage and alienating the audience. So in, in short, if you're a college student, don't do any of that. Get, get, <laughs> get, a, get a degree in, in business and something fun. Andrew, a lot of the people that listen to this particular podcast are creatives and they're trying to make their way kind of through that path mm -hmm. that that you just laid out to to find a platform or a venue that takes them to kind of the next level and you've been the face of several uh, uh well-known media companies over the years and if you were going to offer one bit of advice to somebody who's looking way up from way down right how do they make that climb what what's What's maybe two or three action steps that you would say are the first three steps to get moving? Sure, great. Um, well, why don't I why don't I give kind of a a, a meta a meta statement and then some actionable steps that they could do as well? Um, the uh, you know I, I know your podcast has a lot of entrepreneurs on and and a lot of self starters and and people looking to break out of that nine to five matrix. Um, I am I am definitely more in the creative person and entertainer camp than I am in the entrepreneur camp. So I can I can speak more to the creative people 
that are looking to facilitate their own way than I can say like a startup company or something. So for the creative people that are listening that are, you know, would love to be an actor or a comedian or a musician or whatever that thing is, right? I think the pitfall that creative people fall into, which is sort of the default state for creative people is, um, I just want to be creative and I just have to find the right gatekeeper who will open that door for me and let me get paid for this. I don't want to do, I don't want to run around and sell stuff. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have to hawk wares. I, I, I just want to do my creative thing. And I think that uh, creative people really do themselves a disservice and really hinder themselves by getting locked in that gatekeeper mindset. And I saw that uh, a lot in New York where um, comedians will, particularly in the improv world, they'll become fixated on uh, getting onto a herald team, which is the, 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 the main um, the, the, the main tier of, of the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, which is kind of the main uh, uh, improv theater, but they'll, they'll just be obsessed with it. If, if I could just get onto this team, then people would see me and doors would open. Uh, if, I, if I could just get onto um, this, the sketch team, if I could just get that audition in front of Lorne Michaels, then, then people would see me for you know my brilliance and all this, right? And I think you see this in Los Angeles a lot too, where there's all of these um, struggling actors or, or new actors that are out there and their, their career models literally based on finding a powerful person who is in a good mood, who just you know had a, a solid lunch uh, that, that goes, you know, kid, I like the cut of your jib. And, and gives them a break. And I think right. all of this is a terrible way to design a career. I think it's an absolutely horrible. And I think you, I think you're, it's such a low, low probability of success that you're, you're more likely to get burnt out and cynical and quit. And it's a far better way to approach things of, I'm going to make my own gate. I'm going to make my own platform. I'm going to, I'm going to build my own thing and I'm going to build it from scratch and I'm going to make my own opportunities. And, and, you know, say if you're, if you're in the world of comedy, that would be um, rather than me going around to comedy clubs and hanging out at the bar every night for eight months until they agree to let me go on stage, I'm going to go to a local saloon or something, and I'm going to see if I can start my own stand-up night. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're doing sketch comedy, rather than trying to get onto the sketch team that you so desperately want to be on, form your own sketch team and then record it and start putting it on the internet. But basically make your own things, do your own things, build your own audience. And I, I, I find that not only is that good for developing your career, it's also very impressive to those gatekeepers that you so want to impress. I mean, they're not looking for you. They're, they're overwhelmed and inundated with, with people that are desperate for their attention and favor. But if, if you're creating cool stuff and you can send them a portfolio and be like, hey, I'm really busy making this stuff. If you want to help me make stuff, you can. I think that that's a far better way of approaching it. So having mm. es established that, in terms of actionable steps you could do, um, can you maybe uh, Andy or or JC? Could you maybe give me a field in which um, the the they they would be operating in, like like whether it be podcasting or or stand up or music or something, and I could go from there. Well, let's start with podcasting since that's yeah. that's your your field of industry right that, now. That is my field of industry, and uh, and and I I'm uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not a I'm by no means a Joe Rogan, but but I'm I'm getting I've monetized it. I've figured out how to make money at it. Um, so if, if you were if you're looking to to monetize a podcast, you're looking to do that. Um, uh, then I mean, the first thing is you need to start doing podcasts, right? So um, like like with anything, um, doing actionable steps and getting started is going to be beneficial to you. Um, I would recommend that you if you haven't done podcasting previously and you don't have any experience doing it, I would recommend that you 
probably record at least five, maybe 10 episodes that you don't have any intention of releasing, just so you get a feel for how it works. Um, I've got, so so there's the two podcasts that that, uh, that we've mentioned on the show, The Political Orphanage, uh, the political comedy show I do, and Alienating the Audience, the sci-fi show I do, both of which I already had about 150 episodes under my belt by the time they came out of some other program. Um, there's another show that I might be releasing with a friend here in the next few months, which is a, a like a Frasier podcast. It's just us talking about Frasier. And I'm, I'm aware that this is a niche audience. <laughs> but uh, be, because we recorded it you know, a year and a half ago before I did any podcasting uh, with any regular basis, um, it's painful for me to listen to because the first episodes of it, every other word is uh. And I'm hyper aware mm. of that now. And I still do that, but I do it a lot less than I did. And, um, and with, you know, with any creative project, the, the, the learning is in the doing. So I'd say get started on it. In terms of wanting to build up the, the platform, um, it would depend on what the field you're going to do is, but I would suggest having a clear hook and thesis to what you're going to do. You need to have a good uh, elevator pitch. So if, if your show is the Bob show, and it's just, you know, I'm Bob and I'm going to talk about stuff that that I, Bob, find interesting. And, you know, this week I'm going to have on somebody to talk about painting. But next week I'm going to talk about impeachment proceedings. And the following week I saw this cool movie. Well, Bob, you better be adorable. You better be pretty friggin' cute if you're going to do that. Because the entire draw of that is now Bob, who nobody knows. Whereas if if you've got a clear hook to it, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm Bob and I love talking to uh, successful people who like painting and I want to talk to them about why they use painting as a vehicle for escape, whatever that thing is, right? But you've, you've got to, you were, if you were locked in an elevator, could you explain what you're doing in one or two sentences and, and make it in there? I'll add to that that I think with podcasting in particular, there's two levels going on with what you're doing. Um, there's the overt level that is the, the, a verbal description, and then there's a a kind of subconscious level of what you're doing. Um, so uh, a lot of programs, and this isn't really me since I do I do solo shows with guests. I don't have co-hosts, but a lot of programs you listen to, they're uh, a true crime podcast, or they're you know they're talking about skateboarding. But in reality, what they are is a a buddy podcast. The 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 draw from it is the group dynamic, and that that's very powerful. And I I think a lot of the more uh, more robust podcasts are actually that there, there are kind of sense of surrogate friendship and it's, it's good to be aware of that. But, um, I would suggest having a clear bright line for what you're going to do, um, start doing it. And then I would say, uh, cast a wide net in terms of bringing guests on your program. If it's going to be a guest driven program and also whore yourself out as much as you can. Um, and, uh, as a guest on other programs, I mean, so if you're going to do the, the aforementioned painting podcast, um, I would attempt to get onto as many uh, adjacent podcasts as you possibly can. Get on an art podcast, get on a painting podcast, all these different things, um, because that's going to be a good way for you to expose yourself to other shows. And in my experience, um, going on as a guest on a program is far more valuable than having a guest, even if they're a very high-profile guest, tweeting out an appearance on yours. Because mm-hmm. um, going on Twitter... I, I don't. I don't really think most people find podcasts through Twitter or through social media. I think they find it through other podcasts. Um, so, do that. Start bringing on guests, uh, and then if you wanted to monetize it, um, I would. I would set some kind of threshold of how many listeners you want to get uh, before you attempt to do that. And if you're starting from scratch, I would wait a while uh, before you do it because you don't want to. Um, be an unknown commodity and then invite on several people and then. Uh, um, you know, four episodes and put your hat out uh, because you're you're going to kind of scare people off. But um, let's say you've you've now got 
I don't know, a thousand people that are listening to every episode. You've got at least a thousand downloads per episode. Um, at that point, I think you could start thinking about how you want to monetize it. Um, a lot of, you know, the, the traditional model is to sell advertising space, um, which I think uh, I will probably do at some point if my show keeps expanding, but I don't think that that's the most efficacious way to get income for podcasting. I think Patreon's a better model to do it. Um, and the uh, the other great benefit to uh, using Patreon is that your your core listenership becomes your boss which is a really cool situation to be in and very different than every other entertainment situation I've been in. When I worked at Reason, which is a fine organization, I have nothing against Reason, but when I worked at Reason, my boss was a manager and the head of Reason TV, and they were reporting to a board of directors who in turn were concerned about donors. And so the the conduit from people that watched the show I was producing um, to me was very indirect. Whereas now, um, you know, I've, I've got um, several hundred patrons and uh, I take very seriously their input on every show. And, you know, if they email me, I'll get back to them within a day uh, and, and hopefully sooner than that. And at the same time, if I want to test something out, if I want to uh, uh, if I want to get their input on something, I can reach out directly and go. I was thinking about changing the format, doing X, Y and Z. What do you think? And uh, it, it's mm-hmm. very, very helpful in that regard. So um, I found Patreon to be pretty good in that reg- uh, th- that that role. And in terms of, of monetizing it. I would suggest you do one of the, the following. Either you are on some kind of mission where you are, by virtue of you existing, you're providing a service, uh, which is um, a, a lofty way of saying what I'm doing. I think I think that the, the appeal that uh, people have for the podcast I listen to, The Political Orphanage, is they either kind of agree with my politics or more likely they just like the fact that there's a guy not screaming uh, and they <laughs> they... They, they they enjoy having a comedian that likes people and, and isn't just, you know, spewing projectile bile in every direction, and they want that to keep happening. Um, but it could be something else. Uh, alternately, if, you, if you're producing a really solid, uh, a really solid show that people really enjoy um, and, and you wanted to offer additional content, um, which is probably what I'll do with my sci-fi podcast here shortly, is I'll we'll probably do, uh, we'll continue doing a weekly show. Uh, but then we'll do like a, a fifth episode once a month that'll only be available to people that are on Patreon. Uh, and uh, uh, whew, okay, I think I just monologued for a solid fifteen minutes. Does, is that is that a good start? Well, let, let me see if I got it here, Andrew. Here's the gospel according to Andrew. There's seven things that you want to do in order to be successful. And you're using the example of podcasting, but I think it holds true for any of our audience members who are really looking to monetize their creativity or monetize their business. So first, have a bright line for what you do. Understand what that is really clearly. Then the learning is through the doing and go out and do it. And that's where you'll get better at doing it. Then circulate yourself so that you get the exposure you need to get a following and to grow that following. Four was have an audience size goal in mind so you kind of know where you are and are you reaching that critical mass you need to monetize your business or your podcast. Then six was serve your audience well and really be thinking of that first. And lastly, your audience or your customer is your boss ultimately. How'd they do? I, th- I think you nailed all of those things and, and, and made it sound as if I were giving a, a presentation at some kind of motivational conference. It was way better than the rambling, uh, rambling diatribe <laughs> I offered. Thank you for putting a hat on it. <laughs> Back to you, JC. Yeah, I, I have a follow-up question to that. Um, you were talking about getting on other podcasts, and, and there's a lot of different people have different ways of doing that. What's your go-to method of getting on other shows? Uh, well, I need to. Th- that's something that I need to work harder at. I-, I have focused so hard on bringing on guests to my own program that I have, uh, mm-hmm. I have, 
given short shrift to to really promoting myself on others. Um, I'll say on the 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 getting guests thing, um, it it take that takes a fair amount of time. I don't think people realize just how long that takes. I, I imagine that you guys have had a similar um, similar situation, particularly for you, where you're you're bringing on entrepreneurs. They probably don't have a glut of free time, uh, unlike comedians like me, uh, who are more than happy <laughs> to take out an hour in the middle of the day to talk to another human being uh, because we're alone all the day. Um, uh, take, uh, getting, getting guests takes a whole lot of time. Um, and I've really focused on that and I've been fortunate in that I've, I've managed to get a lot of big names on, on the show. Um, just since June, since I went independent, I've had on, uh, um, uh, Dave Barry, uh, Pulitzer prize winning humorist and George F. Will, uh, who's not very funny, but is also a Pulitzer prize winner, uh, and, uh, about to have on an astronaut. Um, there's a very big name in podcasting that, that is planning to come on. Um, and so I've really focused on that, uh, in terms of getting the guests, um, uh, it, it it seems to me that if you're wanting to build that out, uh, asking guests that you've had on for suggestions on who might be good is always helpful mm. because they if they enjoyed it they're gonna um, they're gonna be happy to bring their friends on and then it's gonna be a lot easier for you to get their friend if they send an email saying hey I was just on Bob's painting show he's a stand up guy uh, I think you'd really really enjoy going on it's a lot easier to get that person there it's also good if if you're able to get a couple of big names you can sort of use that as a credential now even if you don't have a very big audience so um you know I, I when I started my new show I was able to bring over a lot of my old audience so I I you know I was beginning with several thousand people um on the kickoff episode but all the same within about 6 weeks I could start emailing people going you know I just had on George Will and Dave Barry I'd love to have you on and that that definitely helped in terms of um, going on to other people's shows, uh, I'd suggest doing the following. One, cast a very wide net, knowing you're probably going to have a pretty low um, low success rate, in, at least initially. But at the same time, um, be aware that uh, if the higher the amount of content somebody's producing, the more desperate they are for people. Um, so podcasting, uh, if it's a weekly podcast, kind of hit or miss. Conversely, though, if you want to like call radio stations, if you're doing podcasting, a daily radio show is a lot of time to fill, um, particularly if they've got two or three hours. That is a lot of time to fill. And if you if you email them and go, "Hey, I'm I'm a, a media personality, and and this is this is the thing I'm known for," and I could, you know, I, I you guys are probably t- as you know, uh, George W. Bush is painting or whatever the thing is, and you know, and I, I actually have an angle on this. I'd love to bring you on. I'd love to come on and talk about this. And uh, th- there there are certain shows that will go. Oh, thank God, we don't have to work hard. Uh, to to fill this gap for forty five minutes, um, thank heavens for that. Um, uh, so that's a thing. Uh, what I would do if you're looking to get on TV, um, well, is uh, get get clips of yourself, get video clips. Um, I, I can say as somebody that's done booking and television, it is very important that you are a good talker and uh, and not horrifying to look at um, to to a booker on TV. It helps if you're hot. Helps if you're hot quite a lot. I'm sorry to say that, but it's it's uh, don't worry. It's why I'm in podcasting. Uh, but uh, uh, if if you were to say email somebody on TV, and you had three links to shows that you've done, ideally on other TV shows, uh, but if not, it shows you on YouTube and it shows that you're a, co- a coherent speaker who you know isn't isn't fumbling around with your words a whole lot and and looks put together. That will help tremendously because the last thing that they want to do is invite somebody on that's going to be a dud. They don't want that at all, right? So that'll help. If you're looking to get into TV, I'd also suggest, this is this is actually a real pro tip for people listening um, from, from somebody who's worked in primetime television. Uh, now is the time where it's easiest for you to get in, specifically the holidays, because right now um, the people that are regulars on national uh, television, uh, and I would assume local television as well, they're off with their families. 
Uh, but a lot of those shows are still operating. Like like a, a lot of shows probably won't be operating this week on Thanksgiving, but they will be operating on Friday. And their regular guests will not be in town. Their regular guests will be in the Hamptons, right? So they're going to have a harder time filling it. So now's a, now's a good time uh, between now and New Year uh, to avail yourself and go, hey, you've probably already got a ton of guests lined up, um, but I want you to know that I'm on call and it's very easy for me to get to where you're at and I'm happy to do it and I'm happy to do it at a weird time and I... I you know, I, I'm a, a a jazz flutist with a background in painting, whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, very good time to do it, right? Um, and then after that, like I said, I would just I would just uh, listen to as many shows as you can, um, figure out if they have guests on, and if they do, uh, email them. And you'd probably be surprised at how many people would be happy to have you on. I think mm. that's some really solid advice. And And, you know, the entertainment world is a relatively small community where people do know each other or know each other by reputation and are networked together. And I would assume the comedy circuit is very similar. And the podcasting world is actually becoming this way as well as people are uh, appearing on each other's shows and swapping guests and swapping leads. So I'm assuming your contact list is ever growing. What advice do you have somebody that maybe is getting started to, to help them start growing the value of their contact list so they can develop their platform like you've done? Yeah, a few things. Um, so one, one thing that I would recommend is um, if, if you're beginning your program, um, I would, if you ask your audience for anything, ask them for reviews on iTunes. Because if you're looking to get bigger guests, what a guest is going to look at, if they're, particularly if they're strapped on time, is they're thinking, is this either going to be fun do, do I do I know this person or if not, is there any material benefit to me? Um, and you know, not, not everybody's completely mercenary about it, but there, there's a certain amount of uh, mercenary stuff going on. So if uh, if your program has three reviews on iTunes, you're you're far less likely to book a a big name guest because they're going to infer that given that you've got three iTunes reviews, you're probably doing this as a hobby in your parents' basement um, and and you don't have you don't command a very large audience. If you've got like, 30 stars? Okay, well, we know, that we know that there's an actual audience there. If you've got 500 stars uh, or 500 reviews, we know that there's, there's a reasonable-sized audience, right? So um, that's an important thing to do. Um, in terms of the building that contact list out, uh, I would—let me think. I think you could almost make different tiers of who's likely to come on your program, right? So celebrities are going to be the least likely to come on your program uh, because they're, they're very busy and they're very much in demand, right? Um, I have had very good experience with academics. Um, so since, because I'm doing a political podcast, uh, I, 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 I really enjoy, um, abstract thought. I really enjoy heuristics, which is to say like, not are Republicans right or are Democrats right? Rather just how are Republicans thinking? How are Democrats thinking? I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by the, the lens people interpret information through. There are a lot of academics who are as well. And academics are generally undervalued in terms of the publications that they're doing. Sometimes it'll go gangbusters, you know, and you'll, you'll get the, the odd Jonathan Haidt or uh, the, you know, the, the Cass Sunstein or whatever. But f there's a lot of those guys and gals who are, who are doing really interesting work that they're going to do a very brief tour of NPR and then they're done. And they put in all that work and time. And if, if you reach out and very earnestly tell them, um, you know, I, I read your book and I really enjoyed it and I would, I would love to talk to you about it. Um, you, you've got a good shot. You've got a good shot of doing that. So um, they're, they're, uh, they, they've got a product and, and, and really just the fact that you're enthusiastic about it is going to help that. And, and I'd, I'd add to that, uh, read the book. Um, I think part of the reason that I have, uh, a, a good rapport with my guests is that I, I make a very concerted effort to actually read the books, 
um, and, and at least half of them to the point where I can have a good conversation. A lot of people in media, either due to laziness or time constraints, just read the press release and you can tell. Uh, but um, I, I would I would start there. Um, when you've had them on, ask them if there's anybody that you would rec- that they would recommend bringing on. The other thing you might do is um, you might, um, if you're aware that, I don't know, <laughs> you, you, you happen to bring on Donald Rumsfeld on your show to talk about <laughs> painting, right? And I think at the end of that segment, you know, off camera, it would be appropriate to go, hey, I really enjoyed talking to you. Are you still buddies with George W. Bush? Do you like, do you think he'd want to come on the show? And uh, they'll either go, you know, I don't feel appropriate <laughs> asking former presidents I worked for uh, to come on podcasts. Or you might be like, oh, yeah, I think I, I think he'd, I think uh, uh, Gilligan would love it. Uh, and then <laughs> and then they'll reach out to you. So um, it, it's an exponential process where once you start bringing on guests, they can help you get other guests. And uh, and and, and that, that's the way to do it. And, and I'd also suggest really think hard about your own personal network and, and what you have in it. Presumably, if you're beginning a show, um, it's because you're interested in a given field. And if you're interested in a given field, you're probably either in the know with at least a couple of people that work in it, or conversely, you're aware of the the outline of that field. So I, I don't know if you're if you're really into philosophy, you probably know um, some really cool people operating in that space right now that aren't household names. And because of that, those people that you would love to talk to that are very interesting that aren't famous are more likely to come on your show, and then that's going to further open that door. And do you have like a dream list of contacts for people you want to ultimately have on your shows that you're always kind of keeping an eye or an ear open for who could lead you there? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, I've got a, I've, I've got um, for both of my shows, um, I've got a, a list of aspiring guests that I would love to bring on. And uh, sometimes I'm able, actually a couple of times I've been able to make that work. I re- like I really wanted to bring on Dave Barry. He would have been like one of the top, probably top three guests that I would have wanted to bring on. I was able to make that happen, which was great. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there are several people. There's also several people that, um, I would love to bring on that are kind of putting on a fight, but I think they'll eventually capitulate, uh, because they haven't given me a hard no yet. Uh, and I won't, I won't embarrass them at this time, but there's a couple of of people that I've dialogued with that will keep going, well, you know, I'm kind of busy next week. And I, and I'm like, you know, the fact that you're responding to me tells me that, uh, (laughs) there's a little bit that I can eventually whittle you down. And all I have to do at this point is just bug you enough to where you either go, I'm not coming on your show or fine. I'll come. Oh my God, let's just get this out of the way. Uh, the, 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 uh, the harder part there a lot of the time is getting through to the person. So, um, for example, um, uh, when I, when I, um, first started my, my last show, the, the daily program, um, one of my, uh, one of the, the kind of my, my allies in the, in the uh, political media world, uh, who listens to the show and likes it, uh, emailed me and he's like, Hey, did you know Newt Gingrich really likes zoos? And I was like, what? And like, and my first job was at the Oklahoma city zoo. Uh, and I like, I'm not even, you know, a big Newt Gingrich fan or anything, but I, but I ended up getting his email address and went, Hey, do you want, do you want to come on my show and talk about zoos? I don't want to talk to you about Trump or politics or anything. I, I literally just want to talk to you about zoos and uh, former speaker of the house. Newt Gingrich was like, yeah, sign me up. Now uh, the, <laughs> the problem is that he, He's kicked it to his staff, which has been a lot more, uh, a lot more hesitant, and I, I've had a far more difficult time doing it. And, and that can happen sometimes too, where it might be that you would, if if you, if only you could get a hold of the person, they might be very happy to do it. Um, there, there too, though, a lot. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's folks that you you know that uh, are going to help you out. So uh, there's an author that I'm a very big fan of. His name's Matt Ridley. Uh, he wrote The Rational Optimist, which was a, a phenomenal work um, some years ago, and he's written several other books. Well, I, you know, I, I kind of, uh, going back to what you mentioned, uh, uh, Andy, of keeping your ear to the ground, 
Um, I interviewed a, a comedian in uh, London when I was in uh, Scotland this summer. He just had a book come out, and Matt Ridley was one of the blurbs at the bottom. And I emailed him. I was like, do you know Matt Ridley? Yeah. Would you, would you feel comfortable you know, asking him if he'd want to come on my podcast? And, uh, you know, within about a day and a half, um, and I did that with a couple of people. Uh, and, you know, a couple of days later, uh, you know, Lord Matt Ridley emailed me and went, you know, I just had two people swear that you're one of the most clever, funny people they've ever met and I, I should come on your show. So I guess I will. And I was like, great, good. We locked that down. Good. <laughs> I love what you just said. I think that's such an important point for the people that, that follow our podcast here is that is don't be afraid to ask the question. The worst somebody's going to say is no. And then you're no better off than you were before. Yeah. And I, and I think there's a way to handle it with tact as well. Uh, I am, I'm not a pushy person. I, I'm not a, uh, I, I really dislike, um, uh, violating social norms. Um, the, actually over the summer I was doing stand up in Iceland and, uh, one of my buddies over there described me as the only Englishman from Oklahoma, uh, which I, I think is, is fairly apt. So I, I don't, I don't like, um, just irritating people despite my earlier reference there, but I think you can handle it. So like with my friend that, that got me in contact with Matt Ridley, I emailed him and, you know, I, I phrased in it, would, would you feel comfortable making an introduction for me? Because th there are people that I know that I'm in contact with that I would not be comfortable doing, uh, where, you know, maybe I know them, but um, I only know them tenuously. And it really, I don't feel it'd be appropriate for me to, uh, to open up that relationship to an outside person because I don't know them so well. Um, and so I, and so I, you know, would honestly say, hey, like I know them, but I just, I don't think, I don't think it'd be appropriate for me to do that. Uh, but you know, if you ask them kindly, and 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 you know, and you you prepare yourself that they might say no, I don't feel comfortable doing that. That's okay. Hmm. You know, since um, I actually have a little bit of a of a visual in my head right now that you actually have a wall that's similar to the the whole like plan wall, so to speak, where you have pictures and then you have the red string connecting <laughs> I've got the, all the, the different... red string connecting everything. Matt yeah, Ridley's then... friends with George Takei. And once George Takei <laughs> agrees to come on, then I'll be able to get on William. Sh <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, that, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get away from that, that visual. Here's something to think about. Again, you have two shows, political orphanage and alienating the audience. And, you know, again, these are very pretty independent projects. You know, since we as creatives are always a work in progress, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the skills that you find yourself currently developing now, you know, maybe some that are out of necessity and then some that you've been personally interested in? Uh, yeah, well, I've definitely had to learn how to, um, how to be more entrepreneurial about all of this as a result of it, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's um, soliciting money from patrons and, and organizing it. And that means that I've had to become better at, responding to what the market wants. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and an example of that is, so, you know, when, when I was doing a daily show, something's off, um, the, the bills were being paid uh, by, by, uh, by the blaze. And mm -hmm. so, so I was, you know, I was getting paid by a large company. Um, now I'm not doing that. Now, when, when I went independent and started doing a weekly show, in, in my mind, I, my initial thought process was, I can't believe people are giving me money to do this. This is astonishing. Uh, I'm going to work so hard to try and earn their trust and and uh, validate this expenditure, uh, which I think is a good thing to do. Uh, but but in, in my mind, I was going, well, you know, what's the hardest part of this program for me? It's political comedy. The hardest part of it is sitting down and writing the comedy. Um, the the It's most creatively taxing, as I think anybody that has been a comedy writer will tell you. Um, writing content regularly is much harder than just having a conversation because then you can just be flippant and glib and clever. Uh, but actually sitting down and, and producing 
a scripted show is far more difficult than the interview portion of it. And so I, I went initially, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, by golly, I'm going to put out 15 to 20 minutes of, of comedy. Is it a lot? Yes. But is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it for the audience. And, um, and while the core audience appreciated it and liked it, what I realized was that um, for people that were new to the program, from their vantage point, you know, I'm bringing on Charlie Cook from National Review to talk about gun control policy, and that's why they're there. And this guy, Andrew Heaton, that they're unfamiliar with is doing 15 minutes of horse jokes, just 15 solid <laughs> minutes of absurdist Jack Handy-esque humor that makes no, like, what the hell? And they don't listen to it. And so I had to go, oh, okay. Uh, I, I need to kind of realize that I, I'm an I'm I'm a, a important part of this, but I'm not the only part of this, and and the comedy is an important part of this, but it's not, uh, it, it's it's not the um, the engine of this. Uh, the the lot the engine is actually the interview. So I ended up having to shift the the comedy kind of the I do a little bit at the beginning, like about five minutes, and then I I do additional comedy at the end uh, as kind of reward. So I had to be more aware of that, and uh, I will probably further hone that in that uh, I will send out maybe next week I'll send out a a poll to the Patreon subscribers that I have kind of needling them on, um, you know, what do you like about this program? Do you, do you like the interviews most? Do you like the comedy most? Um, do you like, are you here because you're ideological? Are you here because you're temperamental? And that'll help me um, figure out how to get more people like them. Uh, because if it, if it turns out they're like, I don't even really care about the interviews. I just like your thoughts on stuff. It's like, well, that would take a lot. That would remove a lot of time on my part of having to track down guests and then convince them I'm not evil. Um, so that'd be good. Um, in terms of, uh, other skills that I've had to, to, to pick up, I endeavored initially to become good at audio engineering, and I mm -hmm. found it to be such a hassle that I ended up outsourcing it. Uh, so um, the first two episodes I did of this program probably took me a solid day and a half to edit one episode each. So it would be about a day to put the show together, record the show, you know, write the comedy, all that kind of stuff. And then it would be an additional day and a half just to clean it up. Uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, get the audio levels right and that kind of thing. And then um, uh, gingerly reached out to a friend of mine who's an audio engineer, and he quoted me a, a very, very good price uh, in, in terms of my mind of what I thought would be worth it. So I went, okay, no, no take backs, no take backs. Uh, we'll do that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, those are a couple of the things I've had to work on. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it is interesting the, the, the different skills as you, as you go along the way that I've found that it's just like, oh, I would not have ever thought that that was a thing and especially with the audio for example i mean how many people listen to various shows that don't realize that there is a team behind the awesomeness that is is going on there so totally on right. par yeah yeah and there's and i'm still learning things as i as i go along and do this right so like i mentioned the the, the format changes that i've done um i've i've recently become a little bit more cavalier with editing down an episode and I want to clarify, I would never edit down an episode to, to warp um, somebody's perspective. I would never, ever, ever do that. Uh, but let's say that we've got just a really good 45-minute episode on a given topic, and then we segue into a, a, a secondary topic, and it's just the energy level bottoms out, and, and you can tell neither of us are really into it. Um, well, I've, I've kind of learned now, like, well, you don't, it, it's, not, it's not like anybody knows that you're cutting that out. The, the person that's on the other end is probably happy that they sound better. Uh, and more intelligent as a result of you doing it. And so little things like that, I'm picking up ways to structure it. Um, I, I've also developed more of an ear for what is the the animating feature of this. So 
like you know, we spent a fair amount of time talking about my background as a political satirist, but the the new show that I'm doing, alienating the uh, alienating the audience. Excuse me, I was about to combine the two and make a portmanteau. Alienating the audience is me doing a deep dive on sci-fi, and I realize that what I enjoy about sci-fi and, and the discussions that I have is getting into the kind of the underlying themes and motifs and uh, constructs of them. So if we're talking about Robert Heinlein, I I'm really interested in like. What is Robert Heinlein's motivating philosophy? What, what's the what, what's the framework that is uh, his books are passing through? If we're talking about um, the Twilight Zone, let's get into the mind of Rod Serling. What was he trying to communicate? What was the owner? So, but but uh, I I can now kind of do that in a way where I can listen to a show where I can make one myself and go, okay, I I, I know what I'm zeroing in on. Um, whereas if I if I'd done a sci-fi show like say two years ago, it just would have been me kind of going like, wow, sci-fi is cool, right? Let's just talk about the cool stuff, and and it would be fun, but it wouldn't have that kind of deep pull to it that I can now exert. And you've you've learned a lot about comedic timing and through your writing and being uh, out on stand up and and things like that. And so you're understanding the flow of the narrative that the story you're trying to tell as it comes through this podcast. What other business lessons do you think being a stand up comedian or a comedic comedic writer? have taught you that you think are important for our listener to understand? Hmm. I think um, in terms of things that stand-up comedy has taught me for the field that I'm in, you're very much correct to point out timing. Uh, that is that is a, a, a main thing in it. I'd say that um, there's a, a slight panic in the sense that you know that you, you, you're always at risk of losing the audience. Uh, in, a, in an American stand-up context, you need to be having a joke every 30 seconds or so. Um, and if you, you know, just decide to have three minutes without a joke, um, the, the, the audience starts to get very uh, twitchy because they're, they're not sure why you're not being funny. Now, I'm not going to do that every 30 seconds in a podcast. It's not, it's not tenable. But being aware that you need to maintain the interest of your audience, I think, is important. The other thing that, that is kind of dovetailed is I've learned that um, likability is a, a much bigger factor than I realized. Uh, and I, I learned that on stage where if you're doing stand-up comedy, and I, I'll say this, I'm not an edgy comic. Like I, I don't go up and it's not my, it's not my goal to razz an audience, but you know, if, if you put your foot in it and you say something stupid or you, you mess up a joke or something, if, if the audience finds you funny and they like you, they will be very forgiving of you. And American audiences in particular have a very good relationship with stand-up comedians. They, they, like a lot, of, a lot of people, when they find out I'm a comedian, want to know about hecklers. And the, the truth is they're just really not a big factor uh, in the United States. Hecklers are not common at all because the audience is rooting for you. And I found that to be the same case with podcasting. Uh, with, with podcasting, um, doing political media, I was initially very worried about, uh, oh, you know, what if I, if, I, if I reveal this element to my audience, you know, will I lose, you know, it, like... Uh, if, if I do a show on gun control and I'm moderate on these provisions of gun control, will I now lose all the Second, uh, second Amendment enthusiasts that, that I've built up? Uh, and was kind of worried, it was approaching it from really from a political perspective in terms of coalition building. And what, what I found is a huge relief, which is that uh, audiences hate contempt, but they don't mind disagreeing with you. I, I, at least in my experience, audiences are not, they're not as keen as you would think on having their own opinions regurgitated back to them. They're they're much more keen on having a an honest and friendly presenter that can walk them through that process, and they don't mind um, deviation from whatever their particular vantage point is, as long as that person's not, uh, you know, going, "Hey, you stupid yokels! Hey, you dumb!" F you know, like, as long as you're not doing that, you can actually <laughs> go pretty far astray, and and they'll walk with you, which has been 
um, a you know, real relief. One of the adages for improv is to always say yes as an actor. Uh, what what do you think that means in podcasting and in some of the other endeavors that you've been doing where you've been open to saying yes? Yeah. Well, two things. There's an immediate uh, application of that in alienating the audience because I, I do these deep dives on science fiction. But then at the end, um, a fellow comedian that I know from New York comes on and we do a uh, we, we do a comedic rundown of our latest intergalactic uh, comedy romp. So we, we will say like, hey, you know, this week we went to the planet Vulcan for Vulcan's Got Talent. Uh, how did you find Vulcan, Nick? And we'll have this conversation about it, which is straight up improv. I mean, it's us. It's us basically improvising a comedy career in all of the sci-fi worlds that we're talking about um, and very much contingent upon yes and. Uh, in terms of the the broader application of that from a career, I think that you can get into a uh, a bad habit in podcasting of being too regimented uh, and too um, too trapped in an outline format. So if I bring on somebody on the show and I bring them on, actually, there's a good example of this um, that I'll be launching next week. I, I brought on uh, Mike Baranowski, who's a political scientist uh, and a funny guy. Actually, he um, uh, we, we, we were talking about the, the Trump impeachment in terms of Caddyshack uh, and using that as the analogy. Now, I, I thought when I brought him on um, that we were going to be talking about um, the ins and outs of the impeachment proceedings going on. It was going to be a very detailed uh, you know, uh, smoking gun, no smoking gun kind of episode. And it turned into this like very abstract, broad, hysterical narrative where he's looping in Edmund Burke and I'm bringing in Thomas Paine and and we're we're doing all this kind of um, big picture stuff. But uh, we we were both so clearly more more interested in the big picture stuff and the abstract stuff than we were in the day-to-day detail minutia that it, 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 the whole episode flowed better by leaning into that. And I think had I... Had I constantly shut him down and gone, hey, I, I can tell that you're really excited and passionate about this given subject, but shut up about that. I want you to talk about this thing that you don't care about. Uh, the, the, the episode would have suffered a lot. And I, and I can see that sometimes where um, if you've got a guest that's really on fire about something, let him talk about it because uh, enthusiasm is awesome. And, and, if, and if it's a little bit adjacent to what you were talking about, you know, as, as long as it's not a, a, a horrible subject or just something that's absolutely boring. It, it's more fun to have the show go a different direction than you predicted, but have it be an energetic one. Totally agree. Great, great concept. So here we are again, Thanksgiving's this week and the holidays are quickly approaching. What are you excited about for the upcoming year? What are you having preparation and all that fun stuff? Well, I'll say on on a personal level, uh, I'm very excited to know where my shoes are going to be for more than two weeks. I don't think I've I, I have been uh, itinerant since June uh, because I, I did so much traveling over the summer. When the the, the daily program concluded, I, I was in Scotland and did some stuff at the Fringe, and then I was in Iceland. I was at Burning Man, uh, then I was out in L.A. Uh, and and so I've kind of been all over the place, and it's been fun. But I'm I'm really looking forward to 2020 being a year where I could own a plant. Uh, and uh, hopefully get a dog. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, and it, you know, dare I dream that I that a girlfriend could enter the equation? I don't know. If not, I'm, I'm hoping for that dog though. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about getting a little bit more domestic and a little bit more rooted. Uh, and I suspect that that will be the big phenomenon for uh, for 2020 for me. In terms of the, uh, in terms of professionally, there's a bunch of things that are around the corner that, that I'm excited about. There's some big guests, and I'm not, I won't mention them just because in case they fall through, but I've got some big guests lined up for the political orphanage, which I'm very, very excited about. Uh, and 
I've got um, I, I've the the alienating the audience uh, is seems to be picking up a lot of steam and and I'm having a lot of fun with that. I think those are all going to be fun. Um, I'm going to be out in D.C. here in about two weeks, and there's a good chance that I'll be collaborating with Reason again on regular videos. And I, I love working with those guys. They're really funny. Uh, and I, I love working with Meredith and Austin Bragg. So that'll be a lot of fun. There's a production company in Austin that I've had a good working relationship with, and we might be collaborating on some stuff. There's a, a possibility for a travel show. Uh, and, uh, and I've always got like five books I'm working on at any given time. So 2020 ought to, ought to be a fairly industrious year. And I suppose it'll be the first full year where I am a captain of my own ship as opposed to being on somebody else's. And, uh, I gotta say, um, for for people listening to your show that are aspiring to get to that same position, it is a very intoxicating lifestyle, uh, and uh, I'm I'm excited to see where that keeps going. And um, you know, on my end, I've I've been uh, a, a solopreneur or whatever since June, and I'm I'm making ends meet. I'd love to have more money, but I'm making ends meet, and I suspect that I will get better and better at. Uh, broadening that dragnet and and building up an income level and and slowly amassing this podcasting empire and I'm I'm very excited to see that take place. Awesome. Well, as we're uh, wrapping things up today, uh, always love ending with the rapid fire segment. And my first question to you, and I think that you're going to enjoy answering this one, is if you could add one song, one book, and one film to the national curriculum, what would those be? Wow, I do love this question. Hold on. One song, one, one book, book, and one and film? One film. Yep. To the national curriculum. Um, I'm going to come back to the song one because I feel like I have an obligation to... Um, I, I either want to go with 99 bottles of beer on the wall just to force children to <laughs> sit through that <laughs> um, or, or alternately like something deeply meaningful from uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel or, or maybe Electric Light Orchestra uh, or something like that. Uh, um, in terms of one book, I'm tempted to go with either a... I'm sure that such a text exists. If there's a book that just aggregates all of the logical fallacies, that's something I would love for people to know about. Uh, like, I, like there, there are books that I would recommend to people you know, by virtue of being human, uh, but in terms of just what I would love everybody in the country to have a, a, a working knowledge of by the time they graduate high school, um, either Logical Fallacies or History in One Lesson by uh, Henry Hazlitt, which is not really, he was probably a free market libertarian type, but I don't think there's anything in it that Paul Krugman would disagree with uh, or, or any other progressive economist would disagree with, because it's really just predicated on understanding the concept of unintended consequences. And if, if, if the concept of unintended consequences could be broadcasted and resonate with the American public, I feel like I could drop the mic and just walk off stage and my, my work would be done. Um, and in terms of a film, I mean, my favorite film is Groundhog Day, but I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how beneficial it would be in terms of everybody having the same thing. I'll default on Groundhog Day, but uh, <laughs> but I but I reserve the right to change that to something more meaningful here in the future. You know, <laughs> it, it's funny. It, it, you should bring that one. I, I, I think that that movie comes from the time when movies were still original and you were allowed to experiment. That's when I think yeah. of Groundhog's Day. That's, that's kind of what comes to my mind. So as, as opposed to now where we're doing like the, the remake of the sequel, Yes, uh, to the exactly. film, and it's directed by somebody's nephew. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. 
Exactly. Well, Andrew, when you're chasing so many business butterflies around and trying to catch a few and you become overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do to regain your grounding? Two things. Um, one, don't check your email right when you wake up. And I, I don't know if this is a best practice that you guys have already established, or, or maybe it's uh, antithetical to what you do, uh, in which case I highly advise you to quit doing that. Um, I know a lot of comedians who do that. The first thing they do when they wake up in the morning is they check their email, um, in part because they're worried about missing out on any gigs that might be coming their way. Although it, just the way the comedy world works, the likelihood that anybody's going to make a business deal with you before 10 o'clock in the morning is just next to nothing. They're hungover. They're not thinking about that. You don't need to worry about that. Um, or I also know a ton of comedians who, uh, and I, I hate this and, and hope that this ends and they go back to being funny, but they feel a, a moral obligation to immediately get on Twitter to see what Donald Trump has done and then relay their, uh, their, their thoughts on it to the rest of the universe. Uh, and uh, I, I, I feel like that's kicking their day off with um, negative hormones and, and not a lot of, of benefit for them or anybody else. So uh, I, I make it a, 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 a very standard point. It is very rare for me to ever check my email until I've been awake for at least an hour. Um, I, particularly now that I'm in charge of my schedule, it's very easy to shuffle papers and it's very easy to organize stuff and it's very easy to um, uh, just respond to things. And so I, I don't want to begin my day uh, by projecting to the universe, hey universe, I'm here at your beck and call. Whatever anybody wants from me, I'm just going to spend my whole day reacting to it. No, I'm, I'm not going to be reactive. I'm going to set my own course and my own agenda and I will be responsive if I need to be. Um, and so I, I don't, I do not begin the day with email. In fact, what I usually do is um, I will usually in the morning um, or the night before, I will physically write out a, um, like a, a diary of the day, hour by hour, and what I intend to do in that hour. And then I'll have a list of to do at the bottom and I'll even prioritize it further. Uh, it looks crazy. So it's, you know, it's basically a, um, yeah, a, a hour by hour thing up top. And then at the bottom, it looks like all these check boxes with ones and twos and threes next to them and that kind of thing. Um, that way I don't get in the habit of just, well, I guess I could organize my email or I could make a nineties playlist on Spotify or whatever the thing is that won't accomplish anything. I need, I need to get something done. Um, the other thing I'd recommend, and, and this is perhaps more touchy feely, but, uh, I think meditating is a good call. Um, I, I generally begin every day by meditating for about 20 minutes. And, uh, I think at the very least, it just sort of calms your system down and it puts your body in a place where your body's not running on cortisol it's calm, it's, it's, it's relaxed, and once you've done that, now have your cup of coffee. Now check your email and, and prepare for the world, but, but do so from a space of, of peace and stability. Mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, love that. Uh, if every entrepreneur, and since we're already on the topic, I think this is a good follow-up question. If every entrepreneur was given a guide to be in a creative handbook on their first day, filled with brutally honest and accompanied with illustrations, what would be something they'd find in it if you were the author? I think that my, my main point on that would be how astonishingly little the role of inspiration is in creativity and art. Um, you know, like if, if you're writing a book and you're, you're waiting until inspiration strikes, you're never going to write that book. You're going to write it in tiny little bursts, and and you're going to do it three times, and you're going to get bored and go play Nintendo. Uh, and if you're if you're you know you've you've got a if you if you're looking to write a funny script, uh, and you've got 20 minutes uh, of scripted material that you need to produce, and and you you wait until 
that clever idea hits you like lightning, it's not going to hit you. Uh, or, or it's only going to hit you one out of every five times. And what you have to do is you've got to just sit down and go, damn it, I'm going to friggin', I'm going to write these terrible jokes and I'm just going to slog my way through it. But by virtue of that sheer bloody mindedness, I'm going to have one of those 15 jokes, which is okay. And I'm going to keep it and I'm going to repeat the process. And then you do that often enough and you basically train your brain to subconsciously be working. And, and that's, I think, the only way that that ever happens is I, I think you have, to, you have to figure out how to harness your subconscious brain. And that happens by consciously directing it to work on stuff in a very regimented capacity. So I think they would be surprised at how, um, how regimented creativity needs to be in order to be productive. Since you're a history buff, here's a good history question for you. What is something you wish that was still a thing? <laughs> What's something I wish? You know what? I, uh, I really wish the outfits, right? I, I think that the paragon of male fashion was the day they got rid of powdered wigs. Like everybody's still wearing crushed velvet knee-length capes and they have canes and like, you know, like three-piece suits and waistcoats, but they don't have the wigs on. Uh, because I think the wigs were ridiculous. So I, I, I kind of, I wish we could do that. I wish we could go back a little bit and kind of like glam it up. Like, like the, the, the more, um, the, the, the more colorful version of the Victorian era. Nice. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's, it's, I have my own collection of, of nice hats that go with suits, so to speak. And that mm -hmm. I, I thought I'm kind of a weirdo when it comes to that. And the th kind of thinking on your take on, on that is like, yeah. I could, I could definitely see that. That'd be, that'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that I will eventually like redshift into that. Like right now I'm a bachelor. So I have to like vaguely exist within the confines of existing fashion. Once I get married and I, I lock that down, I'm going to look like I'm a, a professor in a Broadway musical more or less constantly. <laughs> nice. Final question before we head our different ways for the evening and off to our big meals and all that for the rest of the weekend. What's the secret to achieving personal freedom? I think that it is a combination of personal discipline and resilience in that um, the personal discipline, I'll just, you know, everything I just said about creativity, I think applies um, and, and being able to run your own project as opposed to having it externally managed for you. I think the endurance is very necessary because it is scary being out on your own, right? Like, uh, like there's, there's a part of me every day that when I, when I post that episode, there's a part of my brain that's like, this is the time that everyone leaves you. And you'll, you'll hop on <laughs> Patreon and you'll have like $6 in it and you'll go, oh no, they found me out. I have to go become an accountant now. Uh, and so that's, <laughs> it's scary, right? Uh, but at the same time, I think if you, can, if you can stomach it for a while and you can push through that, you eventually become aware of your own internal ebullience. Um, in a similar way, uh, I was giving advice to somebody who was in college here a few weeks ago. And when I graduated college, I think a lot of people have kind of ups and downs right when they graduate college. They're dealing with existential angst and that kind of thing. And I remember being really bummed out um, several times and worried that that was like, well, I guess I'm just bummed out for the rest of my life now. And I was like, no, 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 you're, there's, there's a certain homeostasis that you have naturally that you, you go to. And I think, uh, I think you can count on that to a great extent with careers as well, where if, if you if you are by nature a hardworking, industrious person and you're clever and you're disciplined, you're going to be okay. Um, and so, you know, are you going to be a runaway success? Maybe, maybe not. 
Um, are you going to be able to feed yourself? Yeah, probably. You're probably smart enough to figure out how to feed yourself. And so better to do that and, and deal with that, that fear and become your own boss and uh, you know, captain your own ship than to let the fear dictate your circumstances to you and stay in something that's safe and comfortable that you don't want to be in. That's some sage advice. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel a I feel ebullion right now. I do. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. The Hogel, I, I wrote that down I, at uh, uh, 11, 11 a.m. Uh, uh, extend feeling of ebullience to wider I, audience. Success. Fantastic. Before we close, again, you can be found at mightyheaton.com. Where can people find you on the social media? And then, again, where can people find you on your different podcasts? Uh, so, yeah, mightyheaton.com is a, a big panoply of projects I've worked on. You see a bunch of funny videos I've made and that kind of thing. It's kind of a one-stop shop for me. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's also at mightyheaton. And I suspect if you go to facebook.com slash mightyheaton, you'd find the same thing. Uh, but, but Twitter would probably be the best. Uh, so if, if you were, if you're planning on driving to or from a location this, this Thanksgiving, and you're looking for something to binge, I would uh, humbly suggest you listen to one of my two podcasts. The Political Orphanage that we've talked about is a funny politics news show. It's designed for people that, um, view politics more like a playground than a battlefield, are more apt to enjoy playing around with ideas and having a conversation that they like with somebody that they disagree with than, you know, fighting each other in a cosmic battle where winner takes all and, and you should go to hell and die if you disagree with me. It's, it's, it's for the former. It's for friendly people that can disagree and want to laugh and, and observe those things. If you're a nerd, uh, check out Alienating the Audience, which is a deep dive on science fiction. And it's so deep that by, if you listen to all of the episodes, I think your virginity grows back. That's how nerdy it is. So if you've got any hardcore nerd listeners that really want to just do a deep dive on sci-fi, check that out, Alienating the Audience. All right. Well, Andrew, it's been a pleasure, and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, guys. Have a great Thanksgiving. So there you have it. Lots to learn in this chat with Andrew. And my biggest takeaway is that it's really best to build your own stage before you meet that gatekeeper so that when you do, you have a portfolio of work to show them and what you're capable of. Really a great point, and he's right that a lot of creatives, or as I call uh, particular people purists, you know, they don't put the effort in to build their own platform. But building a career out of their work is not their specific goal. In fact, a lot of times they they do it as a hobby. So if you're really trying to build a career as a creative, you gotta build that platform along with the work that you're doing. In this instance, he's actually followed his own advice so that I can actually share with you some uh, of his past work in the show note extras. And in the first video, you'll see his uh, sketch comic ability and a short ad for the fictitious company Un Uber Dunger Cologne. And if you like that, you can find more examples in his uh, podcast. Next, I have a little piece from his Reason TV days uh, called Game of Thrones Libertarian Edition. And if you're a fan of the show, I definitely think you're going to enjoy that little piece. And not to be outdone, though, uh, since Star Wars is in season right now with Episode 9 and The Mandalorian, I thought I'd add another piece from Reason TV, which is called Star Wars, of course, a libertarian special. And finally, since we are on topic of Star Wars, I thought capping the extras off with an interview of his with host Matt Kibbe, uh, titled Baby Yoda for President, would be totally relevant to this conversation. And uh, yeah, who knew the kid had a chance in uh, 
winning the election. So uh, take a listen to that. And again, that'll be in the show note extras. And again, you can find those show note extras with the other notes at newinceptions.com slash 165. So that's it for this session. Remember, if you want to be as satisfied as Andrew and the work that you're doing, check out my free resource, Uncover Your Personal Mission. Again, you can find it at newinceptions.com slash personal mission guide. So with that said, thank you for spending a little bit of time with us today. As always, we appreciate you guys joining in. And until next session, dig in, have fun, and take care in whatever you're creating. And we'll see you back here next time. Thanks for listening to the Angles of Latitude podcast. Connect with us at home, at work, or on the go at facebook.com slash newinceptions, on Twitter at newinceptions, Instagram at new.inceptions, and on the web at newinceptions.com.